we finally made it. We finally made it all the way through our study of the gospel of Matthew. And we're finishing this whole entire book in this message tonight. You want to know how long it's taken us to go through this book of the Bible? Let me give you an idea. We started this series back on September 10th, 2016. And at that time, we were a different church. Technically speaking, God Rock hadn't even been planted as a church back then. And today it's April 11th, 2021, and we're finishing up the book of Matthew as a different church altogether, one that's joined with New Hope Church to become Gospel City Church, which is pretty cool. It goes to show you that a lot can change in four and a half years. And I wonder what God's going to do and where he's going to take us in the next four and a half. So if you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, please have it open to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. If you know me well, you know that this is one of the most pivotal passages in my life. This passage shapes everything I am and everything that I do as a follower of Jesus, which makes it kind of weird that I'm going to preach this message with some self-restraint tonight. I'm going to treat this passage tonight like God is treating the 70 weeks of Daniel. We're going to do the first part of this passage now, and then we're going to leave the last bit for a later date. Now, I'm sorry, that's a bad Bible nerd joke. Um, But if you get it, you get it. So why why are we splitting our text up like this? I think it'll help if I tell you where we're going over the next several months as Gospel City Church. Tonight, we're wrapping up Matthew. Starting next week and for the next several weeks, Jeff will be wrapping up our study in the book of Exodus and walking through the last few chapters of that book. After that, I'm going to preach a three-week sermon series titled, Who is Gospel City Church? We are a brand new church, and so Jeff and I figured that people need to know what we're all about. And here's what each of those three messages in that series will be called. What we believe, what we love, and what we do. I can even tell you right now the answers to those questions in case you're curious. What we believe, the Bible. What we love, Jesus and people. And what we do, make disciples. And that third message on making disciples, I'll be walking us through Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. And so I'm not going to spend much time looking at those verses tonight, even though those verses are a part of the passage in Matthew that we're looking at right now. We'll get to verse 18 tonight, but we're going to save verses 19 and 20 uh, of Matthew for later. And after the series, Who is Gospel City Church? Jeff is going to lead us through an in-depth sermon series, taking us all the way through the book of Revelation. He's going to handle the bulk of the preaching in that series. And when I say he's going to handle the bulk of the preaching, what I'm really saying is he's going to preach all of it. With breaks in between here and there, I'll, I'll handle some mini sermon series along the way. Most likely sermon series that will set the stage for establishing the membership process for us here at Gospel City Church. And so there are exciting days ahead for us. So with that said, let's now get into our Matthew text and wrap up this series. Let's set the stage for our scene. Jesus died. Jesus rose. On the Sunday morning that he rose, both an angel and Jesus told the woman who came to the tomb to go and tell the disciples to meet the risen Jesus in Galilee. The disciples took the woman's word to heart and they went to meet Jesus there. That's where we pick up the story in our text. So with your eyes in your Bible, follow along as I read Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. 
And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There are three things we can draw out from verses 16 to 18 of this passage that highlight some truths we need to know about the Christian life. Here's the first one, and it's the first fill-in on your outline. Obedience today provides new opportunities tomorrow. Obedience today provides new opportunities tomorrow. Here's how this principle works out. Jesus gives you something to do, and then you do that thing. And then he'll give you something else to do. And after you do that second thing, then he'll give you your next assignment and so on and so on and so on. That's sensible. But if you won't do the first thing that Jesus tells you to do, can you expect to receive the second, third, fourth, fifth assignment from him before the first one is ever done? Jesus told the disciples to come to this mountain in Galilee. Again, in verse 16, we see that. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And they came as they were directed. They obeyed him. And once there, Jesus gave them a new command that would change the course of the world forever. On the mountain that day, Jesus gave his disciples the command to make disciples of all nations. Now, the disciples had to first obey Jesus by coming to this mountain before they could receive the great commission from Jesus. If they didn't obey Jesus to come to the mountain in Galilee, they would have never received the world-transforming command to make disciples. What can this look like in our lives? You might say something like this. I want to experience more of Jesus in my life. I want my life to make an impact for the kingdom of God. I want to be used by God in mighty ways. And I would say to you, that's great. I want that too. I want that for me and I want that for you. But if you ever get to a place in your life where you're frustrated that God isn't using you the way you think he could be, then I would ask you some questions like these. Are you currently doing what God has asked you to do? Has God asked you to do something that you're putting off? Is there any area of your life where you're not obeying him? I don't need to give you a list of examples of what that might be for you. Like, are you doing this or that? Or are you not doing this or that? I don't need to give anybody a list. If there's something in your life that you are not obeying Jesus in, chances are really good that you already know what that thing is. Because if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, leading you into all truth. He is convicting you of sin. He is leading you into the will of God for your life. Have you heard him? Are you listening to him? Are you turning that area of your life over to him? Everybody wants to experience more of God in their life. And we want him to move in mighty ways, even while we're living in disobedience to him. But then we turn around and get frustrated with God because he's not moving powerfully in our life or using us in ways that we think he might be calling us to. And God's like, I want to do something amazing in you. I'm just waiting till you're ready to obey what I've already given you. When you're ready to obey me in that, then I can give you more to obey. But we can't skip this first step. The disciples had to obey Jesus' command to meet him on the mountain before they could receive their next marching orders. 
Jesus works the same way in our lives today? Is there a mountain in your life that Jesus has directed you to go to? Will you go and meet him there and then see what he has for you next? Obedience today provides new opportunities tomorrow. That's the first thing about the Christian life that we can draw from our text. And here's the second one. And it's next fill-in on your outline. There's room for doubt in the Christian life. There's room for doubt in the Christian life. We see doubt pop up in our text in verse 17. And it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. What does this mean? They worshiped him, but some doubted. Worshiping Jesus and doubting Jesus in the same verse. What's going on here? Doesn't the Bible say that the righteous will live by faith? Isn't faith the opposite of doubt? How can worship and doubt coexist? Or can they coexist? Let me give you two possible explanations to what's happening in our text. First, the worship and doubt were experienced by the same group of people. In this scenario, the 11 disciples worshiped Jesus and some of these same 11 also doubted. Have you ever heard the phrase, I can't believe my eyes? Someone says that when they're witnessing something that's so incredible that they're having a hard time processing what they see. They see it. They believe what they see because they can see it, but they also can't believe what they see because it's too amazing. The 11 disciples have already seen the risen Christ before this encounter, but now they're seeing him again. And it's still, it's still such a wondrous sight that some of them are having a hard time processing what they're seeing. They believe, but they also can't believe it at the same time. Worship and doubt by the same group of people. That's one way we can understand what's going on in this scene. But there's another way that it can be understood too. The second way we can look at this and understand it is that the worship and doubt were experienced by different people. We know there were more than just the 11 disciples who heard the report from the women coming back from the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. In Luke's gospel, he records a scene after Jesus' death where two disciples were walking when Jesus came up to them and began walking with them. In the conversation that they had, these men relayed this piece of information to Jesus, talking about the women who were at the tomb. Luke 24 verse 9 says this, And returning from the tomb, they, which was referring to the woman, told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Ah, there were more than just the eleven disciples uh, who, were, who heard the report from the women who were at the tomb. This larger group of people were gathered together after the resurrection of Jesus. And it's this group of 11 plus people who may have went to the mountain in Galilee to see the risen Christ. And out of this group, the 11 disciples worshiped and some of the others doubted. That's a very real possibility too. You can study these two explanations further on your own and come to your very own conclusion. Just keep this in mind regardless of what conclusion you come to in your, in your study, in a sense, in a sense, doesn't matter. Here's what I mean. It doesn't matter if the disciples were the ones who worshiped and doubted at the same time. It doesn't matter if it was the disciples who worshiped and if it was another group who doubted. Why doesn't it matter who it was who had the doubt in the scene? It doesn't matter because even though it's true that the righteous will live by faith, 
that doesn't mean that there are any Christians who live their life with a perfect faith in God 100% of the time. What Christian do you personally know who lives every moment of their life with 100% faith in God? There's only one person who ever lived like that. And technically speaking, he wasn't even a Christian. That's because he is the Christ that every Christian follows. Only Jesus lived a perfectly faithful life before the Father. That means that every single one of us has wrestled with doubt in our lives as Christians. And we've even given into that doubt at times because we're not perfect like Jesus is. This isn't bad news. This is actually really comforting news. You're not alone when you doubt. It should comfort you that your Christianity isn't forfeited because you experience doubt in your life sometimes. It should be comforting to know that there's room in your life to have doubt and to wrestle with it. Doubt will be a part of your life. There's no avoiding it because you're not God. But let me clarify something. It's acceptable that you have doubt, but it's not wise or encouraged that you get comfortable with your doubt. Don't take a nap in your doubt. Don't fall asleep in doubt's arms. Don't believe your doubt when it cradles you in his arms and whispers to you, shh, it's okay. It's okay. Just stay here with me a little while longer. It's okay. A little doubt never hurt anyone. Don't give in to doubt's sweet talk. It's okay that doubt happens because it will in every Christian life, but it's what you do with your doubt that matters. I've heard one preacher say, doubt your doubts. And that has always stuck with me, that phrase. Ask questions about why you are doubting. Doubt your doubts. Wrestle with your doubts on your own. Share your doubts with other people. This is a great thing to do in your home group. As you grow in relationship with your brothers or sisters in Christ, share your struggles with each other. And on that note, don't crap on someone when they open up and share their doubts with you. If someone opens up to you and says, hey man, I'm having a really hard time believing this part of the Bible in this season of life that I'm in right now. Can you pray for me? Don't respond to that with, bro, I thought you were a Christian. Shame on you for having any kind of doubts ever. That kind of response would be both hypocritical and a surefire way to ruin the chemistry in your relationships in the church. Remember, one of Jesus' own disciples had doubts of his own. It was Thomas who was the one who infamously doubted the resurrection of Jesus. We can read about that scene in John's gospel. John chapter 20, verses 24 to 28. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, uh, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas doubted that Jesus rose from the dead, even after the other apostles told him they saw Jesus personally. And do you notice how Jesus dealt with Thomas's doubt? 
He didn't avoid Thomas. He didn't chastise Thomas. He came to Thomas personally and ministered to him. Jesus did the same thing to the people in our text. He came to those who doubted. Look at the end of verse 17. It says, but some doubted. And look at what the very next words say in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them. See, Jesus drew near to those who doubted. God comes to doubters. And if you're not perfect like me, then that's music to our ears. There's room for doubt in the Christian life. You can be a Christian and still wrestle with doubts. Okay, this brings us to a third aspect of Christianity that we can take away from this passage. And it's your third fill-in on your outline. All authority belongs to Jesus. All authority belongs to Jesus. We see Jesus make this claim in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How much is all? Not a, not a trick question. All is all. Even if you do a, a Greek study of the word all, you're going to come to find that conclusion. All means all. Jesus has all authority over the world. He has all authority over every single person in the world. He has all authority over his church. Jesus has all authority over the physical universe. Jesus has all authority over the unseen spiritual world. He has all authority over angels. He has all authority over demons. He has all authority over Satan. He has all authority over death. He has all authority over hell. He has all authority over heaven. All, 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 all. Are you getting the picture? Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is the Lord of Lords. Jesus is over everything that exists. He is the supreme leader above it all because all authority in heaven and on earth was given to him. But this raises a very important question. I'm not sure if you notice this when you read it at first glance in the text. Jesus says that all authority was given to him. Why did Jesus need to have all authority given to him? Isn't he God? God is the one who has all authority. It's one of the perks of being God. God doesn't need anyone to give him anything. And so what's happening here? Why did the son of God need to be given this authority? Let's take some time unpacking this together. First things first, Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, is the eternal God. All authority has always been his. It has been his from eternity past. John opens his gospel with these words describing Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Later in John's gospel, he records Jesus praying these words to the Father as he neared the end of his earthly ministry. John 17, verses 4 to 5. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And the Apostle Paul wrote this about Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. All that the son of God had ever experienced was total and and complete authority from all eternity. That authority was in himself. No one needed to give him any of it. And then Jesus went and did something that blows our minds. Jesus became a human being. God became a man. The eternal son of God was conceived in Mary's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. Nine months later, the first Christmas happened and God was born into this world. This has never happened before. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. It's just a fancy way of saying that in the person of Jesus, we see two natures, a divine nature and a human nature at all times. Jesus was 100% God as he has always been. And now for the first time, he was 100% man too, both God and man at the same time. He didn't morph from God to become a man and then cease to be God. He also didn't jump back and forth throughout his life from God to man and man to God. Ever since his incarnation, Jesus has always been God and he has always been man. But when God was born as a man, he lived out his life as a man. A well-known passage that highlights this reality is found in the apostle Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Listen to what he says about Jesus there. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is God, but he didn't cling to his godness. The scripture tells us that Jesus emptied himself, which means he set aside the radiant glory he had from eternity past and chose to walk in the humility that comes with taking on a human nature like ours with all its limitations, weaknesses, and frailties, such as hunger, thirst, tiredness, temptations, pain, and suffering. At no time did he cease to be fully divine. He just made the decision to not display the fullness of his godness in the walking out of his human experience. Then as a man, he obeyed the will of the father all the way to the cross. Let me give you an illustration that I think might help understand this mystery a little bit. There was a TV show on the Discovery Channel called Undercover Billionaire. Billionaire Glenn Stearns suspended all benefits of his billionaire lifestyle. He gets dropped off in Erie, Pennsylvania with $100, a cell phone, a pickup truck, and an alias. He has no real money, no credit cards, no business contacts, no friends can help him. He has 90 days to build a a million-dollar company from nothing. Now, his his real bank account was still full. He still had all his business contacts and his private jets. He just chose not to avail himself of those things that he had during the 90-day period of the show. I've never seen the show, but I looked up to see what happened because I was curious what the outcome of the show was. And after 90 days, 
Stearns built a company worth $750,000. Not quite a million, but really impressive going from zero to three quarters of a million dollars in 90 days. Jesus never ceased to be God, but he chose to live his human life without tapping into the heavenly resources that were always his. Instead, Jesus chose to come into this world with the equivalent of a hundred bucks, a cell phone, an old pickup truck, and he changed the trajectory of the universe forever. Okay. But then how did he do all the stuff that he did? (laughs) If he didn't tap into his godness, how did Jesus do all those God-sized miracles if he didn't use his personal God resources? Well, do you remember what happened at his baptism? at the very outset of his three-year public ministry, before he performed any miracles at his baptism, Jesus was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fell on Jesus and empowered his humanity to do the things that he did as he lived every moment of every day in total deference to the will of the Father. Jesus did the miracles the Father told him to do by the Holy Spirit that was given to him. Jesus lived a perfect life as a human being. Jesus was eternally, perfectly God before his incarnation. There was no beginning to his existence or his perfection. But he had never been a human being before his incarnation. That was a first. When he became a man, his humanness had to be proven that it was perfect too, just like his eternal godness was already was. God had to unite his perfect godness with a perfect humanness. So God had to walk out his humanity. He had to live a perfect human life. He had to obey the perfect will of the Father. He had to reject the temptation to sin. He had to do both perfectly all the way to the very end, all the way through the hardest part, all the way through his cross. The author of Hebrews writes that the humanity of Jesus was proved to be perfect through his obedience that led to his suffering. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 to 10. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering." Jesus received all authority from the Father as a reward for his human perfection. Jesus' eternal godness was eternally perfect, but now after his life, death, and resurrection, his humanity was shown to be perfect too. Jesus passed the test. At his resurrection, his humanity and deity were both perfectly fit to be united forever, and then he was ready to rule the universe as the God-man. Not just God like before. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was given all authority from the Father as a reward for his perfect life. He earned it as a man. He proved it as a man. 
And now as a man, it was his. 40 days after the incarnated son of God rose from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of the father. And from there, Jesus has been ruling over all of creation as the God man. There's a human being holding the universe together right now. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. Listen to Paul in Philippians. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All authority was given to a perfect human being, and that's why all authority was given to Jesus at his resurrection. Isn't that incredible? Now, when Jesus reveals to someone that he has this kind of authority, that kind of revelation demands a response from those who hear it. How should people respond to this reality that all authority belongs to Jesus? Should we be afraid? Many responded that way when they encountered Jesus. John got a taste of fear when he experienced Jesus. Listen to John's accounts in Revelation. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's a proper, maybe even involuntary, natural response when the veil is pulled back and you behold the one who has all authority. Fall on your face, scared to death at the glory that stands before you. But what did Jesus say to John in the very next words in that passage in Revelation? Revelation 1, second part of verse 17. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Fear not. Don't fear. I didn't count each one, but I've heard that there are 365 times in the Bible where it says the same thing over and over. Don't be afraid. Fear not. It's a natural and proper response to fear God, but according to the Bible, it shouldn't be our primary response to Jesus. If fear shouldn't be our primary response to Jesus, maybe it should be blind obedience to him. He does have all authority after all. Shouldn't we obey the one who has all authority? Yes, we should obey anything Jesus says to us. But blind obedience isn't even the primary response we should have to the one who has all authority. Well, if it's not fear and if it's not obedience, then how should we respond to Jesus when he reveals himself to us? We should love him. We should love him. Because remember what kind of supreme power Jesus is. He's not a Pharaoh. He's not a Caesar. He's not a Stalin. He's not a Hitler. He's not corrupt. He's not hot-tempered. He's not evil. 
He is love. He is the one who lived the life each of us should have lived, sinlessly perfect. He is the one who offered himself up to die in our place on the cross. He is the one who rose from the dead and then appeared to the ones who abandoned him so that he could offer them forgiveness of sins and eternal life as a free gift. He is the one who pursues each one of us while we were still in our own sins. He is the one who fills us with his very presence when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside his people after they believe in him. God in us, what intimacy. The God who is love fills his people with his love. He pours his love into our hearts and that love should be poured out back to him. That is the kind of all authoritative power that Jesus Christ is. Our primary response to the one who has all authority should be love. We should love Jesus. Now you can love Jesus and still tremble with fear when you consider what kind of all-encompassing power he is. You can still love Jesus and still obey him. That's kind of the point, actually. When you love Jesus, you will obey him. You will love his will over your own will. Our obedience displays our love for him. It's impossible to have the love of God poured into a heart and have that heart not respond to him in love-inspired obedience. It's impossible. As a side note, this is why obedience is not the primary response to his authority, and it's love instead, because it's possible to obey a lot of Jesus' commands and still not love him. Jesus said this about those who would come to him with obedience but no love for him. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, many, many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The Father's will is that you know Jesus. The Father's will is that you love Jesus. Demons obey Jesus, but they don't love him. Love is the deciding factor in a relationship with the king of heaven. Keeping with this topic of authority, we don't just love the authority Jesus has over our lives. We live with this authority in our lives as Christians. We engage other people in the world with this authority. Jesus delegates his authority to his people. Picture it like this. A dad tells one of his sons, Go tell your brother to come to dinner. And what if that son goes and tells his brother to come to dinner and his brother says, no, I'm not coming. Is he disobeying his brother? No. Ultimately, he's disobeying his father who commanded him to come to dinner. That's what it's like for us as Christians. We're just telling people what dad has said. When we share the gospel with people who haven't heard it or believed it yet, we're not sharing our own ideas and asking people to repent and submit to our own authority. We're, we are only ambassadors sent with a message. We've been, giving a, we've been given a charge by the king. He tells us, go, command people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. That's not our message. That's the king's message. If I tell you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, if you reject me, you're not rejecting my authority. You're rejecting the authority of the one who sent me to you. We also see this delegated authority play out in the church as we disciple one another in the church. Jesus said, make disciples 
teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That tells us to tell each other, hey, God's calling you to live like this as we point people to the Bible. Will you change that part of your life and live like this instead? Yes? Great. No? Are you rejecting your brother or sister in Christ when you say no to what they point out to you in the Bible? No, you're not rejecting them. You're rejecting your father in heaven. Christians don't have any authority apart from the, what the word of God says to people. We appeal to the Bible. If you don't agree with the Bible, you don't have a problem with Christians. You have a problem with the God that sent them to you. Okay, let me close. We've highlighted three things from this passage that we need to know about the Christian life. First, we saw that obedience today provides new opportunities for tomorrow. Secondly, we saw that there is room for doubt in the Christian life. And then thirdly, we saw that all authority belongs to Jesus. Next week, Jeff is taking us back into Exodus. And a few, in a few weeks after that, we'll be back in these verses in Matthew. And when we do, we'll be looking at another major aspect of the Christian life. The mandate King Jesus has given all of us to make disciples. I can't wait to walk through that with you. Let's pray. Father, I just want to, I want to thank you. I want to thank you just continually. Lord, make us a people that are full of gratitude, full of just thanks on our lips, on our tongues, just coming out of us. Just thank you. Thank you. We have so much to be grateful for. I want to thank you, Lord, for the last uh, four and a half years of, of time that has passed since we started our series in Matthew and where we're at now and, and all of the grace that we've experienced in both God Rock and New Hope Church that has brought us together as Gospel City Church and all of the stories of your grace and your love and your mercy that have happened over the last four and a half years, Lord, of our lives. Thank you for it all. I want to thank you, Lord, for Gospel City Church and bringing us together. And I, I just... I thank you for your work in that. Your hand has been so plainly seen in this move, Lord. And so we praise you. We praise you for it. And we want to thank you, Father, in advance for what you're going to do in and through us in the next four and a half years. Lord, let us just sit at your feet and behold your glory and how big you are. Give us God-sized dreams, God-sized passions, Lord, God-sized inspirations to obey you and to do whatever you say to do, whatever it looks like, whatever it costs. Give us faith to do that. Give us faith, Lord, and lead us wherever you want us to go, not just individually as Christians in Gospel City Church, but as a church family. Lead us, Lord. Lead us, we pray, and we thank you for what that's going to look like in advance because we know it's going to be good. Bless you, Lord. We love you. We thank you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us for this study. Before you go, I want to share just a few quick things with you. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to mynewhope.ca slash gospel right now. You'll find a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing. So go to mynewhope.ca slash gospel right now to learn more about Jesus. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Email us at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. 
If you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of Gospel City through financial giving, you can do so by going to mynewhope.ca give. And finally, I want to invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for updates and encouragements throughout the week. And you can find all those links in the top right corner of our website. We love you, Uppercase C Church. Be blessed.